The scripture reading for this morning comes from Mark 1, 1 through 15. It can be found on page 836. Again, Mark 1, 1 through 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Who is Jesus? Uh, To some, he was a moral example of love and compassion and self-sacrifice. To others, Jesus was a great teacher who taught us to love one another. Some believe Jesus was a prophet who spoke on behalf of God. Others hold that he was a miracle worker who did supernatural acts. Some believe that Jesus became a divine being, whilst others are certain that he was simply a man. Many believe that he is a historical figure, whilst others think that he was just a myth. Most people don't think that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic, but that doesn't mean that they think he is Lord either. Over the years, we've run a Christianity Explored at our our church and a Christianity Explored course at our church. And I've noticed that that the people who attend that course, even staunch atheists, often think quite positively about Jesus. But they couldn't tell you with confidence who he is or even why he came. Jesus is arguably the most influential human being in the history of the world. But who is he? Who would you say he is? There are many opinions out there about Jesus, conflicting opinions. But who is the real Jesus? The answer to this question is supremely important. How we answer this question impacts everything. Because if Jesus is simply a a good example, a moral teacher, a myth, a mere man, then we're free to take him or leave him. However, what if Jesus 
is something more. What if Jesus is more than a prophet, more than a teacher, more than a good example, more than a man? Well, this brings us to the gospel according to Mark. Here we have the very first written account of Jesus' life. Mark was a friend and co-worker of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. Most scholars believe that he wrote his book around 65 AD. And this is significant because it means that most of the people who encountered Jesus were still alive when Mark wrote his book. You know, as modern people, it's easy for us to approach Mark's book with a skeptical eye because we read of demons being cast out, storms being calmed, the sick being healed, the dead being raised to life, and we instinctively think, did those things really happen? It sounds more like a Harry Potter novel than a historical account. But it's important to know that Mark isn't writing his book centuries later after Jesus. He's writing during a the, during the time when these incidents would have been fresh in people's memories. As we read Mark's accounts, we'll notice that Jesus had a very public ministry. He, he really did things behind closed doors. There were thousands of eyewitnesses to these events. And any one of these people could have objected to Mark's book. Any person could have stepped forward and said, hey, I was in the crowd that day and Jesus never did any of those things. Even the religious leaders, the ones who were going to see plotted Jesus' death, they never once deny that Jesus did supernatural things. Like if Mark is just making this stuff up, we'd expect at least one person to cry foul, but the silence of history is deafening. And so as modern people, I think we should be hesitant to approach Mark's book with skepticism. It would have been very difficult, impossible even, for Mark to create a Jesus out of his own imagination. For example, if Mark had written, one day, after Jesus had finished teaching the crowds, he levitated into the air and he flew like Superman to Capernaum. People would have said, oh, actually, I was there and that never happened. And I think this should give us great confidence as we open Mark's book. Because if we want to answer the question, who is Jesus, the real Jesus? Well, Mark is actually the most reliable historical source we have. The New Testament contains four accounts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is actually the earliest and the shortest of these books. And his gospel account has a very simple structure. So I've, I've put this structure in, the, in your handouts. I'll put it up on the, on the screen for you there. And I think this structure is helpful because it, it, it provides the, the key to understanding Mark's purpose. So we'll see there that the first half of Mark's book concerns the identity of Jesus. So from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8, verse 30, Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus? And then the second half of the book concerns what we might call the mission of Jesus. So from chapter 8, verse 31, all the way to chapter 16, verse 8, Mark is answering the question, why did Jesus come? Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't mention Jesus' birth 
or his early life. He also includes fewer of Jesus' sayings and sermons. We're actually going to discover that that Mark's account is is fast-paced and it's action-packed. You probably noticed that when Adam read the sermon passage. So in 15 verses, we're told about four different events. Mark is fond of the Greek word euthus, which is often translated as immediately. He uses it 41 times in his book. It serves to propel the narrative forward with speed. In other words, there's there's an urgency about Mark's message. This is... His book is not like a 10-season murder mystery where you discover the identity of the killer at the end. No, Mark does not want us to want to leave us in suspense about who Jesus is. And that's really clear from the opening line. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark opens his book with the Greek word arche, which means beginning or origin. It's actually the same word that we find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in in Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, in the arche, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, for Mark, the arrival of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the universe. In fact, Mark is actually gonna show us that in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. The next significant word that Mark uses there is the term gospel. It's the, it's the Greek word euangelion. It means good news. In the ancient world, a, a gospel, a, a euangelion, was a report of victory from the battlefield. <clears throat> so imagine, like, imagine that you're sitting at home, right, and, and you can't sleep. You can't eat. You're nervous, stressed. You look out the window and the streets are empty. And that's because every able-bodied person has gone out to war. And it's been weeks, months. And you have no idea how the battle is going. All you know is that if war is lost, you're in trouble. Because a conquering army will come rampaging through your city. And people will be killed, enslaved, exploited. Unthinkable and unspeakable things will take place. The very thought makes you sick to your stomach. But then, in the distance, you see someone. It's a messenger, a herald, and he has euangelion, good news. And he's declaring it, war is over. Victory is one. There is peace and rest and life. I mean, this is the best news you've ever heard. All of a sudden, the streets are no longer empty. There are, there are people who are dancing and singing and crying tears of joy. This is the kind of good news that Mark is talking about. You know, a free Chick-fil-A sandwich is good news, but it's not euangelion. A handshake from Paul Hollywood is good news, but it's not euangelion. Delivering a newborn baby, getting the job you always wanted, being financially secure, receiving a clean bill of health, marrying the spouse of your dreams, these things are all good news, 
but they are not euangelion. What Mark has for us here is good news like you've never heard. War is over. Victory is won. There is peace and rest and life. That's what Mark wants to proclaim to us. But notice what he says next. He calls his euangelion, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For Mark, the good news is more than a set of truths. It's more than keeping religious rules or obeying God. It's more than going to church and praying and reading your Bible. It's, it's, it's even more than a set of beliefs. For Mark, the gospel is a person. Jesus is the good news. This is so important to understand. Christianity is not fundamentally a way to clean up your life. It's not primarily a way to make you a moral person. It's not chiefly a collection of doctrinal beliefs. It's not merely a way to avoid hell and go to heaven. At its very heart, Christianity is good news about a person. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that means that the gospel is relational. It's about knowing Jesus. Now, the word Christ there is not Jesus' last name. Okay, so my last name is Jones, Scott as well. Jesus' last name is not Christ. It's actually a title. Christ is a title like president or a king or king. It's the Greek word Christos, which translates the, the Hebrew word Messiah. It refers to someone who is anointed. The Christ is the anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, the anointed one, the Christ, was God's chosen king. And so when Mark refers to Jesus as the Christ, he makes an astonishing claim. He's saying that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He's God's chosen king, the one who will establish God's everlasting rule on the earth, the one who will come and deliver God's people from all their enemies. The second thing Mark tells us about Jesus is that he is the son of God. Again, this is a term loaded with significance. In the Old Testament, God referred to Israel as his son. We see that in Exodus 4. However, the people failed to live up to their calling. Therefore, as time went on, this concept of sonship was was narrowed down from the whole people to an individual king. As God's son, the king became the, the people's representative before God. Yet, if you've read your Old Testament, you'll know that the, the Old Testament kings also failed miserably in their task. And what Jesus is going to show us is that he is the true and better son of God. He's the true Israel, the true king. And that's because, as we're going to see, Jesus is the son with a capital S. He's more than a man. He is God himself. So this is Mark's explosive introduction. We could almost call it the title of his book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. But how do we know? I mean, how does Mark back up his claim here that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that Jesus is good news for people like you and me? Well, Mark is, throughout the rest of his book, he's going to give us ample evidence to make his case. But in our passage this morning, he's going to give us really the first blocks of his evidence. He begins with a couple of ancient prophecies. So look at verses two to three there. He, he says, <clears throat> as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So before Mark introduces us to Jesus, he actually points us back to the Old Testament. And although he only mentions Isaiah here, he actually combines two Old Testament prophecies. So in verse two there, he cites Malachi chapter three, verse one, where God promised to send a messenger. This messenger was, would prepare the way for someone. In verse three there, Mark cites Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, which speaks of a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In other words, God himself is coming. The Lord is on his way. But to prepare the people for his arrival, God promised to send his messenger. That was like a common thing back then. Actually, it's a common thing now. Like if a, if a dignitary, particularly like a king, a, a world leader was coming into town, then they would send people ahead of them to get, to get the city ready for their arrival, to get people ready to announce their arrival. This is what God is doing here. He's coming into town, and so he sends his messenger to get people ready for when he arrives. And in the next few verses, Mark identifies the, this messenger with a man named John. Look at verses four to six. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. John here has all the, all the hallmarks of an Old Testament prophet. In fact, there's a striking similarity with the prophet Elijah, the way he dresses, his wilderness setting, and even his call to repentance would have reminded the people of that day of Elijah. And that was significant because God had actually promised to send an Elijah-like figure in preparation for his arrival. So the appearance of John is, is massively significant. It means that God himself is on his way. And John's task is to prepare the people for his arrival, for the coming of the Lord. And he does so, verse 4, by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word repentance means to turn. It's, it's to have a change of mind, heart, and will. It's to, be, it's to literally do a complete 180 and head in the opposite direction. Spiritually speaking, it's to feel deep remorse for one's sin and then turn to God for help. 
That's what the people of John's day needed to do. They needed to repent, to turn away from their sin and to turn to God. And they knew it. Look at verse five. Scores of people are coming out into the wilderness to confess their sins and be baptized by John. Now, baptism was a symbol of being cleansed from sin. To be baptized is to declare I am so morally dirty before God. I need to take a bath from head to toe. The idea is that you get washed on the outside because you need to get clean on the inside. Now, now the precise origins of baptism are unknown. However, in Jewish custom, it became a practice for Gentiles to be baptized. It was like an initiation rite into the Jewish community. However, John turns up and he says, you all need to be baptized, Jew and Gentile, no matter who you are or where you come from. It doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee or a prostitute. Y'all need to get baptized. That's what he's saying. And now baptism, when it was practiced in the ancient world, a person would usually baptize themselves. They would usually wash themselves. But as you can see, John's baptism is different. It's unique. He has to baptize them. And if you take a sneak peek at verse nine, John is gonna tell tell the people that someone else is also gonna need to baptize them. So what's going on here? Well, the message John is proclaiming is simple. He's saying, you can have forgiveness for your sins, but you can't cleanse yourself. You need to be baptized by someone else. You need someone else to give you a bath. Now listen, maybe you're here this morning, and if you were completely honest, you know that you're not the person you should be. You know that you've fallen short, not simply of God's standards, but even your own moral standards. You know that the world's brokenness doesn't just exist out there, but in here too. And you've felt that need to be cleansed. Maybe you've never even put words to it before, but you just sense that inside there is this dirt there that needs to be washed away. You need this this power wash of the soul. You know, we, we try to tell ourselves that we're good people, don't we? But imagine that we could see into each other's hearts it wouldn't be a pretty picture, would it? We'd see anger, perversion, greed, envy, selfishness, pride, partiality. I mean, the list would go on and on. We wouldn't be able to look, look each other in the eye. It's not simply that nobody's perfect. It's that everybody's rotten. Some of us just do a better job at hiding it. In the TV series, True Detective, Matthew McConaughey plays a Louisiana detective called Rust Cole. And in one episode, we learn that Rust Cole is the go-to investigator for the department. He is able to elicit confessions from almost anyone. And his ability to do so just astounds people. And so naturally, someone asks him how on earth he does it. How does he get people to talk? And here's what he says. He says, look... Everyone knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everyone wants some cathartic narrative for it. 
The guilty especially, and everyone's guilty. You know, we all need to confess our sins. We all need cleansing of our guilt and shame. We all need to take a bath. But here's the thing. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't, like, scrub ourselves clean. Like, maybe, you, maybe you've started to realize that. You've changed your behavior. You've made amends. You've become a better person. And now you're even attending church. Yet you still feel dirty. The truth is, we can't save ourselves. We can't atone for our sins. But John has good news for us. Look at verses seven to eight. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The point of John is to point to someone else. Don't forget, he's just the messenger. After John comes someone who is mightier than him. In fact, John isn't even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Now look, the force of this comment is lost on us a little bit. Like if you think feet are gross now, just imagine what they were like in John's day. I mean, this was a time before pedicures and avocado body butter, you know? People, people walked around all day in the hot sun, trekking through dirt and, and animal waste and, and, and other yucky things. By evening time, they, their feet would just be a hot mess. I mean, if you saw a foot like that today, you just want to, like, chop it off and throw it into the fiery pits of Mordor. I mean, they were just, they were just gross like in the ancient world, untying someone's sandals was the duty of like the lowest slave. It was a task for, the, for, the, for someone on the very bottom of the social ladder. And so just feel that the impact of what John is saying here. This great prophet, the one who's drawing thousands of people into the wilderness. He's saying, listen, someone is coming and compared to him, I'm a nobody. I'm not even worthy to get down on my knees and untie his sandals. Look again at verse nine. Because it turns out, John's baptism is just a symbol. After all, water cannot cleanse our souls. Someone is coming after John who will bring the reality. He will provide a power wash of the soul because he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, human beings did not have the authority or the ability to bestow the Spirit. The bestowal of the Holy Spirit was, was it belonged exclusively to God. And so verse nine can only mean one thing, can't it? It can only mean that God himself is on the way. And when he comes, he will baptize people. He will cleanse people with the Holy Spirit. He will give them a bath 
so that they can receive forgiveness for their sins. What great news. So who is this superior individual that John is speaking about? Well, we meet him in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Do you see what Mark has been doing? He's been showing us that Jesus doesn't just like appear on the stage of human history out of nowhere. His coming has been foretold by the prophets. His appearance is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope. God himself promised to come. And how does he arrive? He arrives in the person of Jesus. In other words, Mark's trying to help us to see that Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament. He is God himself who's come in human flesh. And so we can't help but be surprised by verse 9. Why on earth is Jesus being baptized by John? In fact, John himself asks that very question. Mark doesn't tell us, but in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, look what we read. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered them, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus, the son of God, taking a bath? After all, he doesn't need cleansing for his sin. Here's what's happening. We're going to see this more as Mark's gospel progresses. What's happening here is that Jesus is identifying with his people. He's come to be their representative, to stand in their place, to live the life that they should have lived. He is the second and last Adam, the true and better Israel, the anointed king, the Christ. It's really important that we see the symbolism here behind the water. In the Bible, water was often associated with cleansing, so we've thought a little bit about that. However, it's also a symbol of God's salvation through judgment. I'll say that again. It's a symbol of God's salvation through judgment. So just think a couple of examples. Think about the flood in Genesis. God brings salvation to Noah and his family through the judgment of flood in the earth. Or think about the Exodus. God brings salvation to the Israelites through the judgment of drowning the Egyptians. To be submerged under the water, to pass through the water was to experience God's judgment. But to come up out of the water was to experience God's salvation. And so Jesus' baptism here becomes prophetic. It becomes a picture of what he will eventually do on the cross. Jesus, the son of God, will eventually die on the cross. He'll be plunged under the waters of God's judgment, not for his sin, but for the sins of his people. 
But three days later, he'll rise from the dead. He'll come up out of the waters of God's judgment, accomplishing salvation for his people. And so baptism becomes a powerful picture of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has accomplished salvation through his life and his death and his resurrection. Do you see why Mark thinks Jesus is good news? Here is a king who dies for his enemies. Here is a God who identifies with us in our sin. Here is a savior who dives headfirst into the waters of God's judgment so that we can be forgiven of our sin. This, my friends, is euangelion. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. At his baptism, we get a hint of Jesus' mission. But for now, Mark is mainly concerned with Jesus' identity. And his identity is confirmed in verses 10 to 11. Because as Jesus comes up out of the water, three supernatural things happen. First of all, the heavens are torn open. The word Mark uses there for torn is only used once more in his book. It's used as Jesus hangs on the cross. Look at Mark 15, 38 to 39. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Do you see how on both occasions when this word is used, God uses his mighty power to reveal the identity of his son. Secondly, the spirit descends. The Greek word there is is literally into him like a dove, not just simply on him, but into him like a dove. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. As we're going to see in the book of Acts, this is really significant because After Jesus dies, he he rises again. He ascends to heaven to the right hand of the Father. And then he pours out his spirit on his people. He baptizes his people in the spirit, just as John said he would. Thirdly, a voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The identity of Jesus is foretold by the prophets. It's announced by John, and now most importantly, it's confirmed by God the Father. Jesus is not just a moral teacher, nor is he simply an example of love and and kindness and sacrifice. He's not merely a historical figure or a mighty prophet. He is God's beloved son, the long-expected Lord, the divine Christ. You know, if we get Jesus' identity wrong, we'll get his mission wrong. If we don't understand who he is, we won't understand what he came to do. If Jesus is not the Christ, the son of God, then his death on the cross is meaningless. And that means there is no euangelion. There's no good news. We still need to take a bath. We're still stuck in our sins. But if Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, then Mark has good news for us. Because in Jesus, it means we have a savior, someone who can cleanse us from our sins and then can reconcile us to God. So let me ask you again, who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? 
But there's another surprise in our passage. Because after verse 11, we might expect Jesus to be treated to a celebration in a palace. But instead, we read in verse 12 that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The temptation of Jesus gets more airtime in Matthew and Luke. Mark gives us a very condensed version here. But he makes it clear here that Jesus, this son of God, is actually an obedient son. He's willingly led by the Holy Spirit into hardship. And as he goes into the wilderness, as he goes to be tempted, Mark has shown us something of Jesus' identity. He's shown us that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Because where Adam fell into temptation, Jesus overcame temptation. Whereas where Jesus, he's also shown us that Jesus is the true and better Israel. Because where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded. Now commentators aren't really sure why Mark includes the detail, includes the detail about wild animals here. So some think he might just be simply emphasizing the hardship Jesus experienced in the Judean wilderness. Some think that he might be alluding to Genesis chapter 2, where Adam found himself amongst the animals, although I think this is a bit of a stretch. Others think that Mark is trying to comfort persecuted, his persecuted readers. So Mark is writing during a time when Christians were being persecuted by the Emperor Nero. Some were even being thrown into the lions. So maybe this is Mark's way of telling his readers, Jesus knows what it's like to be faithful to God and be thrown to the wild beasts. But whatever the reason, Mark's larger point seems to be to highlight the conflict of Satan. This will be a repeated theme in Mark's book. We'll actually see it next time. To accomplish his mission, he'll need to suffer and overcome the evil one. Our passage concludes in verses 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're told in verse 14 there that John was arrested. The Greek there is literally handed over. He was handed over. And that word occurs 10 times in Mark's gospel to, to describe Jesus being handed over to death. Again, I think what we see here is Mark just highlighting that the gospel is gonna to come to us in the context of suffering. Jesus comes into Galilee and the first thing he does, his first public act is to preach. He proclaims the gospel of God, the euangelion, he says, the time is fulfilled. This is a decisive moment in human history, the fulfillment of God's promises. For centuries, people have been waiting for this very moment. Why? Well, because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near, it's here. The kingdom has arrived because the king has arrived. 
in Jesus, the king of, kingdom of God has made a personal appearance. And so what's the application? How are we to respond? Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus gives an urgent call to repent, to, to turn from our sin and to believe in the good news. Now, Jesus' audience had limited information, didn't they? I mean, all they knew was that the fullness of time had come, the kingdom of God was at hand, and that God's promised salvation was about to be accomplished. Yet Jesus calls them with that information to take hold of this good news and to turn from their sin. But listen, you and I, we have far more information than they did because we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus came not simply to announce salvation, but to accomplish salvation. We know that Jesus came to live and die and rise again to save us from our sins. And so what we need to do is to turn from our sin and believe in him. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, this is what Jesus calls you to do. I mean, you can choose to ignore him. You can choose to keep living on your own terms, to be your own authority, to be the king and lord of your own life. However, what if? What if Jesus really is the Christ, the son of God? Are you prepared to stand before him, the king, stained and soiled with your own sin? Do you really think that you can cleanse yourself? It's really important that, to see that Jesus isn't calling you to believe bad news. I think that's how we often think of Christianity, isn't it? We think, if I really believe, I'm going to have to cut out all the fun and enjoyable aspects of my life. I'm going to have to, and I'm, I'm going to, have to replace those things with religion. I, you know, so... Instead of sleeping with whoever I want, I get to stay at home and pray. Instead of setting my own agenda, I get to obey a bunch of commands. Instead of sleeping in on Sunday mornings, I get to be at church. I think that's how we often think about Christianity. Like it's a call to bad news. Like if that's what Christianity sounds like to you, then, then you've misunderstood it. Mark has good news for you. He wants you to meet Jesus, to know Jesus, here is a king who uses his authority to serve his enemies. Here is a God who lays down his life for the sins of his people. Why would you not want to know him? And don't for one second think that he won't have you. If you're poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, well, Jesus ready stands to save you, clothed with pity, love and power. He won't turn you away. If you're sick with sin, Jesus will be your great physician. If your soul is thirsty, he'll be your fountain. If you're crushed with guilt, he'll be your righteousness. If you're stuck in darkness, he'll be your light. If you are feeling weak, then he'll be your strength. If you're lonely, he'll be your friend. And on that day when you face death, he will be your resurrection and your life. Everything you need, you can have in Jesus. He is euangelion. In him, war is over. The victory is won. You can have peace and rest and life. Satan has been conquered. 
Sin has been nailed to the cross. Death has been put to death. So hear his summons to repent and believe. But what if you're here today and you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus? It's interesting to know that the the verbs that Mark uses here in verse 15, they signify continual action. In other words, repentance and faith are not one-time momentary acts. They're things that we do every day, every hour. Jesus is calling us to a way of life here, a a continuing turning away from sin and believing in him. So Christian, let me ask you, is your life marked by repentance and faith? Are you continually turning away from sin and believing in the gospel? Or has the good news of Jesus become old news? Have you heard the gospel so many times that you just take it for granted? Dare I say, are you starting to get bored with Jesus? I remember taking my son to Home Depot for the first time. He didn't know what to expect. And as he walked through the doors, he stopped, looked up, he raised his hands, and he said, Whoa! Look at this building! Now, Everybody in the store was just dying with laughter, as you can imagine. He did not have a category for a store like Home Depot. He was in awe. But now he's been to Home Depot a bunch of times. The awe's kind of gone. He's not that impressed anymore. He doesn't even look up when he walks in. You know, when we first heard the good news of Jesus, and I mean truly, hear it, it sounds like the best news ever, because it is. We find ourselves in awe of Jesus, but over time, it's easy for the good news to become old news, isn't it? We lose our awe. We're not that impressed anymore. And so we live our lives like there's better news out there. We spend our days waiting for that thing that we hope will bring us peace and rest and life. It's not... We don't just want good news, we want new news, a change of circumstances, a better job, a college degree, a a dream house, a relaxing vacation, a loving spouse, a new baby, better health, more possessions, greater wealth, whatever it is for you. And look, these things might be good news, but they're not euangelion. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the good news. And Christian, he is all yours. You have the good news. Notice how the word gospel appears three times in our passage. Mark doesn't want us to miss this. If we lose sight of the gospel, we'll go back to sin. We'll look for the good news in something else, anything else. But Mark wants to proclaim the good news of Jesus to us. And there's no better news than Jesus. Brothers and sisters, every day we get to wake up to the cry of euangelion. War is over. Our sins are no longer counted against us. Jesus, our King, has rescued us. The Son of God has died to save us. 
Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the good news. That you came to live and die and rise from the grave so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be forgiven, and so that we might be saved. Would you help us to believe this good news, to take hold of this good news, to turn from our sin? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.